text for this morning's sermon is Luke 2, verses 39 through 52. Luke 2, 39 through 52. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Uh, Father, uh, I ask now that you help us see uh, Christ as glorious even as a boy, that we would see what your plan for our rescue, that we would see our opportunity for a relationship with you uh, in him. God, I pray that uh, you make uh, this uh, sermon and this text practical to our lives. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I was reading a tweet the other day that gave a definition for worldliness. And the definition is, was this, when evil is considered normal and righteousness is considered odd. That's worldliness. When what's evil just feels normal to the culture and what's righteous seems odd, that is worldliness. We see, every time we look at Jesus and, and for the next year and a half or so, or maybe even longer, we're going to be in Luke, and we get to look at Jesus Christ and what His life was like. And every time we look at Christ, we have an opportunity to learn about what's really normal in the eyes of God. We have an opportunity for perspective. We have an opportunity to see what would be odd in God's mind and what is right in, 
in God's mind. There's a sense where every time we look at Christ, we learn about what God values and what God thinks. In Christ's humanity, we see humanity's potential. It's real easy to look at the world and be bummed out about this is what man does, this is what man looks like. But when we look at Christ, we actually see potential in us, in those who are found in Christ. We all love champions. We, we love movies that have a champion. We love, uh, some of you like sports and you like to see a great champion or a team of champions. But in all the champions we look at, we're, we don't get to be champions with them. In a sense, even if it, your sport team wins, you don't really win. You know, they win the Super Bowl. We don't win the Super Bowl. They get the experience of what it's like to be a champion, and we don't get the experience to know what it's like to be a champion with them. In a sense, we kind of pretend. In a sense, we, we look at their joy and glory and get to take some of it for ourselves, but in reality, it's not us. They don't know us. But when we look at Jesus and His life, in the Gospel of Luke and in in all the Gospels, we get to see, we get to share in His victories. Before the foundation of the earth, for those who are believers, for those whom God has called and those whom God has, has elected, God has decided to do good to us in Christ. And that good is to conform us into His image. To make us like Him. To really share in His victory. And that's perspective I want you to think about as we approach this text and as we uh, look at Jesus. I don't want you to look as someone who is detached and says, well, that's awesome. He was a nice boy. He was the Son of God. But rather see how you can be sons and daughters of God in Christ. Jesus, we're going to see, rescues us from our biggest enemy. And our biggest enemy is idolatry. Our hearts tend away from God, and yet if Jesus can have a relationship with His Father, a perfect relationship, then there's hope for our biggest problem we have. Our hearts can look to God. Our hearts can trust in God. So what I'm asking of you from this text is to see your Savior and be reconciled to God and man in Christ. Because of what Christ has done, 
I want you to know how your relationship with both God and man can be saved. So let's use our imagination a little bit. Let's try to really get into the reality of what it would have been like to live out this account. Let us remember that these are not just stories that speak spiritual truths, but this is history. This is true history that Luke has recorded so that you and I can have certainty concerning the things of Christ. We just got done with Jesus being presented in the temple. And that passage ends uh, in verse 39. Let's, let, let's begin there. Luke chapter 2, verse 39. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. So we have quite a bit of uh, information about the birth of Christ, how the angel told Mary that she was going to give birth to the Son of God. He was going to be the one who would sit on David's throne. And the birth narrative comes to the end as they present him in the temple. And then we fast forward 12 years. Things are going to start moving really fast in Luke. And next week, we're going to fast forward 18 years. So just get in the flow of Luke is telling us about Jesus' life. We get one picture of Jesus as a boy, 12 years old. And... uh here is what we read about his life up to that point. We knew he, he grew, he became strong, he was filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. This is similar to what was spoken about Samuel when God was raising up a prophet finally in Israel. The favor of God was with him. And then here's what we see, verse 41. Now as parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. Think about this for a minute. There's an annual vacation if you were a devout Jewish family. You would take a trip all the way uh, to Jerusalem. Uh, this was a long trip, uh, 80 miles for uh, those who lived in Nazareth. And... Uh, Every year, they would take this trip. In this particular trip, Jesus was 12 years old. Now, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. When, and when he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom. Now, here's what the law of God required of uh, all Jewish males. In Deuteronomy 16.16, 16, here's what the law says. Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that He will choose, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Booze. And they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. So what God required of all devout 
Jewish uh, men is to celebrate these feasts. And the Feast of Unleavened Bread is an eight-day festival, or a seven- or eight-day festival of celebration. Now, we're told that they went to celebrate the Passover. So the first day of the Unleavened Bread Feast began with the Passover Feast. That's the first feast of the whole festival. This is the biggest feast uh, for, for a Jewish family. And, and they would travel to Jerusalem. A town of 25,000 people would turn into uh, over 100,000 people when the Jews would uh, travel there to celebrate uh, the Passover feast and the, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Uh, according to jo- Josephus, by the first century, because so many Jews were scattered, so many Israelites were scattered away from Jerusalem, it was a custom that most of them only traveled to one of the feasts. And the big feast was the Passover feast. So uh, a lot of uh, Israelite males in the first century, according to Josephus, the ancient historian, is it was most common that they would travel to this feast and a lot of them wouldn't make all the feasts anymore. The Passover feast was in March, would be our March or April. And uh, it was a time when at least Jesus' family, they all went. It wasn't just the males. The whole family went and probably went in a big caravan of people as people would be streaming in to Jerusalem. Uh, you might think of it like if you're ever going out to the Black Hills during the bike rally, it's just a stream of bikes <laughs> from every direction. On the interstate, the, in the middle of nowhere, South Dakota, there's motorcycles. And you can imagine what it would be like uh, for them traveling uh, to to this Uh, Passover feast. And here's what we read uh, in verse 43. When the feast ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, and his parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but when they began to search for him, along with their relatives and acquaintances, are But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. So you just get done seven days feasting with uh, the people of God. Uh, The party's over. The festivals over you're on your way home you're in your big caravan and and evidently a first century uh, caravan would have the women and children up front uh, because you didn't want to leave them behind if they weren't moving as fast and the men would be in the back now Jesus is 12 years old he's right at the point where a Jewish boy uh, in, in a sense enters manhood uh, years later, uh, they would come up with, uh, the Mishnah talks about uh, bar mitzvah, where you become a son of the covenant at the age of 13, uh, where in a sense, you take on what your circumcision represented. Now, uh, you become the son of 
the covenant. And what we don't know is how he was unaccounted for, but it's not surprising. If you're traveling in a group, maybe over a hundred people, and uh, <laughs> Joseph could be in the back with the men, and Mary could be up front, and both of them could be assuming that Jesus is along uh, for the trip. Now think about it. Jesus was sinless. He was the perfect, obedient son. They didn't have to worry about Jesus, I don't think, disobeying or not doing what he ought to do or what he's told to do. And so they take a day's journey, and at the end of these, uh, a day's journey in a big caravan, uh, the husband and wife would come together and they would split off into family groups and you would camp for the night. And evidently at the end of that journey, that first day's journey, Jesus is unaccounted for. Jesus is uh, nowhere uh, to be seen. And uh, so they uh, returned to Jerusalem searching for him. Uh, verse 46 says, After three days they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking questions. Now I want you to think about this for a minute. Three days before they found Jesus. They had a day's journey back to Jerusalem, and then evidently they didn't find Jesus to the following day. That's a long time to lose your child. And that's a long time for a child to be away from mom and dad. That's two sleeps away from mom and dad. I'm trying to picture how this would go with my children. You know, it's one thing you get lost in the store for a little bit. That can be scary. But there's two nights where they didn't have Jesus and Jesus didn't have them. But they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to the teachers, asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And as when his parents saw him, they were astonished. Now there's some surprising things, I think, in these verses. One, that Jesus isn't just distraught because he lost his parents for three days or they're not there they left him he seems to be doing just fine he's in the temple listening to the teachers he's asking questions he's giving answers and they're all amazed all of them when luke uses the word astonished or amazed a lots of times he's pointing to a miraculous event that has happened for a 12 year old boy it seems like he's miraculously wise and has wisdom that is astonishing everyone. Uh, some of you might be surprised that Jesus was asking questions. You might be thinking, why does the Son of God need to learn from the teachers in the synagogue? Well, because the Son of God is 100% God and also 100% man. And taking on human flesh, becoming God incarnate in human flesh, He grew and learned like we grow and learned. 
And so he was asking questions. In Nazareth, they probably didn't have great teachers in the synagogue. Here you would have the best teachers. What an opportunity for Jesus uh, to learn here. Uh, and uh, another thing that's surprising, I think, or might seem surprising to you, is that Mary and Joseph, it says to them in verse 48, when his parents saw him, they were astonished. I know when I first read that, I'm thinking, why were they astonished? <laughs> she, the virgin birth, Mary, <laughs> you're told you're giving birth to the Son of God. <laughs> why, wouldn't it, why would you be shocked at that Jesus is in the temple and has this incredible wisdom? Well, let's, let's get, understand reality. That was 11 years ago, 12 years ago, that all those things happen. Evidently, it seems like Jesus lived a normal boyhood life up to that point. Luke didn't find anything that he thought he needed to record about Jesus' life before this event. And 12 years is a long time of normal. A long time of uh, not seeing the miraculous. And we're told that his parents uh, were astonished. And then we read what uh, Mary says at the end of verse uh, 48 there, and his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Now, any parents here who have ever lost their kids for a certain point in time can understand exactly what Mary's saying. How dare you, son, put us through this incredible distress of our special child that God has given us, that we, that we lost you. How could you do this to us? It's understandable. That's what I would say if I was Jesus' parents. And I think they were surprised that he was gone. I, unbelievable. Jesus isn't here. He's they're surprised at his teaching, but then Jesus also is uh, surprised. We're as as we're going to see here in a moment. There, there's one point I want to just point out before we move on. Is this won't be the last time Jesus being obedient to his father is going to cause his mother distress. Being obedient to God does not mean no distress for mom and dad. And I think that's real practical for us who are parents, who have Christian children. What if they say to you, God's calling me to go be a missionary in Iraq. Mom wants to say, what do you want to kill me? What do you want to put me through? Distress? But here, the perfect son, the one who never sinned, the perfectly obedient son, put his mom and dad through distress in this case, will continue as he starts his ministry as his mom and brothers are afraid that he's going to get himself killed later. 
and obviously at his uh, crucifixion. But then we see in verse 49, he said to them, why were you looking for me? See, it's normal for us to look at this and say, yes, what Mary said is perfectly normal and right. Are we really going to charge Mary with sin here? Well, she did just accuse Jesus of doing something wrong to her. And he didn't. But it seems normal, and yet Jesus is surprised. It seems, as he says, why were you looking for me? You're upset with me? You're surprised? Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my Father's house? Jesus is surprised. And and you're going to see it throughout the Gospel. He marvels at their unbelief. (laughs) One thing being the perfect Son of God, but totally man, and having your faith be perfect, one of the things that shocks you is the lack of faith, evidently, of all those around you. Jesus marveled at how God continually is faithful, and yet His people would not believe Him. And here He marvels that they were in distress and they couldn't find Him. They didn't know where to look for Him. Him, Did you not know I must be in my Father's house? In the Greek, that's as strong as you can say it. I must be in my Father's house. Literally, the Greek says, I must be in the of of my Father. And the King James translation is uh, in the business of my Father, doing my Father's business. It seems like the better translation, though, is the place of location in my Father's house. Did you not know that I must be here? Here I'm 12 years old. Don't you, in a sense, know who I am? And yet, Luke tells us that they did not understand the saying that He spoke to them. They didn't understand it. And then in verse 51, he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. As a dutiful son, Jesus returned to Nazareth and was obedient to them. It shows that he's fulfilling all the law. He's being obedient to mom and dad. Jesus is right here. In a a sense, this is where he was supposed to be, and yet Christ being right submits to the law of God, submits to parents. I mean, think of it. You would have to be the Son of God to always be right and not rub it in their face in this moment. I'm trying to picture any other 12-year-old that knows they're right, knows their mom and dad is wrong, and not kind of give them a little bit of a, (laughs) let me tell you how this is, but we're told Jesus submissively goes with them to Nazareth, uh, returns with them. 
And then it says, and his mother treasured all these things in her heart. She didn't understand them, but she was treasuring them. She was pondering them. And we're told that Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So what can we practically take from this text? What can we learn from this account that Luke has recorded for us? What can we learn? What, is this, what effect does this have on our lives? First, first thing in light of this text The charge is this, fellowship with your Father in Christ. Have fellowship with your Father, with God in Christ. Here's the reality. You are a human. Every human on the face of the earth has a broken relationship with God. That's how you were born. That's how every One was born. Our greatest need in the entire universe, if you're going to have any joy at all, if you're going to have any security at all, you have to have a relationship with Christ or with the Father. There's no hope for you apart from that relationship. And here is a 12-year-old boy having that relationship with his father having such a close relationship that he knew he must be in his father's house we're told later in luke chapter 10 verse 21 it's interesting in light of this text we're looking at reading further on in luke uh In chapter 10, verse 21, after the 72 came back uh, from casting out demons and, and preaching the Word and healing, in that same hour he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank You, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that You've hidden these things from the wise in understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, for such was Your gracious will. Here a 12-year-old human being knew the Father perfectly. It was revealed to Him. And then, and then you read on though in Luke 10, it says, all things have been handed over to Me by My Father. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father or who the Father is except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. There's only one human being that knew a perfect relationship with God. And it was Jesus Christ. And the only way you're going to have your most important relationship restored is if through Jesus Christ, Christ reveals the Father to you. You see that? As our champion has this close relationship with the Father at 12 years old, you and I can rejoice and know that we too 
can know this Father. In John 1.18, we're told no one has ever seen God. The only God, and that's speaking of Christ in this passage, no one has seen God the Father, the only God, Christ, who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Here Jesus is referred to as God. No one knows the Father. No one knows what He's like. No one knows God. But God, who sits at God's right hand, Christ, in John 1, He has made Him known. Fellowship with your Father in Christ. That's that's the only way our relationship with God will ever be healed is through Christ. And you know what He's done for you. And we're going to talk about that more. How He's taken away your sin. How He's given you righteousness. Rather than God's wrath being against you, now God treats you as a son and will only do good for you in Christ And the reason why Luke writes again is that we can have certainty that Jesus is the Son of God. In this passage, we can see Jesus is the Son of God. For there's no other statement like what Jesus said. When He says, did you not know I must be in my Father's house? You know what every other Israelite said? Our Father's house. This is the Son of God. Jesus knew who He was at 12 years old. That's a question everyone asks. When did Jesus know? We don't know the time when Jesus realized He is the Son of God and He is the Christ, but He knew it at this point in time. He knew who His Father was. He knew where He must be. And also from this text, we can have certainty that Jesus was really 100% man. We're told in verse 52, Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. This passage presents the God-man to us. The reason why we need the God-man is we don't have a Savior without Him. Here's what the writer of Hebrews says about Jesus gaining are becoming more perfect. Someone could say, how can Jesus be sin, the sinless Son of God if He's going to gain wisdom? We have the same problem in Hebrews when the writer of Hebrews in chapter 5, verse 8 says this, although He was a son, He learned obedience. How do you learn obedience? Does that mean you were disobedient before? We're told he's learned obedience through what he suffered and being made perfect. Wait a minute. How does Jesus become more perfect? And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. See, it's a good question to ask. And in Hebrews 2:14, it says this: since therefore 
the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Slavery. For surely it was not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Here's how Jesus became more obedient without ever being a sinner and became more perfect. Jesus suffered throughout His life. Every time God's will, His Father's will for Him was to suffer, and it was just by coming here, He began suffering like He never knew. Every one of them was a test. Every one of them was a temptation. The climax is in the garden when he's praying, Father, take this cup from me. What's in the cup is the wrath of God. Is there any other way? And when God doesn't answer, his answer is no. Jesus became perfect in obedience in that not that he ever was disobedient, but his obedience needed to be tested. And it was tested and every temptation. Satan comes to him and says, if you are the Son of God. See, the temptation is to believe that he's not. He already knows he is at 12. He didn't need to buy into that temptation because he knows who he is. Every temptation in Jesus' life, he was obedient. And he gets to the end of it perfectly obedient. And why did he need to do that? Because you and I face temptation and we fail. We lose trust in God. But here is a human being on this earth doing what we could never do. And according to the writer of Hebrews, it was he needed to be made perfect through every test, through every temptation, so that he can be the perfect man to stand in your place to give you His righteousness that you don't deserve and to take your sins that He might be the propitiation for our sins. He might be the payment. He Himself. Christ was made perfect. Now, listen. If our champion can face temptation and be obedient, you want to know, remember what God promised? to conform us into the image of Christ, we can more and more, not perfectly until Christ returns, but we can be obedient even in the midst of unfair judgments against us. We can be obedient like Christ and not grumble against God. Think about it. He never grumbled once in the face of all the suffering the Father put before Him. He never grumbled once. That doesn't mean it was easy. It wasn't. But He was made perfect as He was tested throughout His life. So point one, fellowship 
with your Father because, because of Christ, in Christ. If you trust in Christ, He reconciles you to His Father. And He can help you in your temptations. Second, fellowship with your Father preeminently. Uh, before we go to bed, a lot of times what happens in our house is my daughters will say, Mom, I love you. You're the best mom ever. And Laura will say, I love you too. And then I'll hear, Dad, I love you. You're the second best dad ever. <laughs> the reason why they say that is because their dad's a pastor. <laughs> and I won't let them say, you're the best dad ever. But what Jesus knew, and one of the things we need to learn from this, is that our relationship with the Heavenly Father is preeminent over every relationship in your life. See, this is normal in Jesus' mind, and yet the places you and I will squirm most in the Gospels is when Jesus says things uh, like this. Jesus said to them, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go bury my father. And Jesus said, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Don't even go to your father's funeral? What? This is an odd thing Jesus is saying. Or in Luke uh, 12.51, do you think I've come to bring peace on the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They'll be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. These are hard teachings, and yet Jesus knew that there can be no idolatry in his life, not even with his mom and with his dad. And we see who his father, who his allegiance is to in this text. It's more real. I mean, that's the thing that's shocking. His relationship, this close relationship with the father is more real to him even more comforting to him than spending the night with your mom and dad like it's been for the last 12 years. And you and I can really have a more real relationship with the Father than with even those in our own family. Fellowship with your Father preeminently above all else. And thirdly, fellowship with mankind in light of your fellowship with your Father. You know, it seems odd. You would think if Jesus was the perfect man, and He is, and He has a perfect relationship with His Father, you think then He would have to be in total rebellion to His sinful parents. But the shocker, the whole law is summed up in what? Love God and love your neighbor. 
God is perfect and your neighbors are all sinners. And yet Christ is this example. Because He knows who He is, because His identity is secure, then He can submit to sinful parents. Then a sinful a wife who has a husband who doesn't obey the Word of God, as First Peter 3 says, you can still submit to that husband if you know who you are in Christ. If you are a slave to a cruel master, if you know who you are in your relationship to your father, then you can even treat that cruel master with respect and work harder than anyone else. Because you can have a relationship with your Father, you can love your enemies. You can be obedient. Listen, teenagers, your parents aren't always right, but that doesn't matter. You can be obedient when you think you know you're right and they're wrong because of your relationship with your Father. Jesus did what He did throughout His life because He knew who He was. He knew His identity with His Father. That's how He could love those who were spitting in His face and ripping out His beard. In Christ, you can have a relationship with the God in whom you were rebellious against. In Christ, you can love God more than all the idols on this earth. And in Christ, you can love your enemy. You can love fellow mankind even when they're not lovable. As we see our champion at 12 years old, we can rejoice because God has promised to conform us more and more into His image. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I thank You so much for the privilege to be able to read about Your Son, to have certainty about who He was. Father, I thank You that myself as a sinful man, as one who tends to hate my enemies and one to love other things more than You. Lord, I thank You that I can look at Christ and have hope because He came to seek and save the lost sinners like me. God, I pray that everyone in this room would know that their only hope in life and death is knowing Christ, knowing God, that He could be their substitute, that He can take away their sin. Father, I pray that You would build our faith, that we would cling to Christ, that we would read the Gospels with wonder in our eyes as we see our champion doing what we could never do. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.